The framework of business is completely different in the new normal. To explore culture as the strategy, we have to look in places we haven't before. Looking into company culture from the C-suite to employees and from Fortune 500 to startups. It's time to understand the human side of company culture and the new shape it is taking. This is the conversation on Culture Factor 2.0, and I'm your host, Holly Shannon. Bruce Daisley is one of Europe's most influential voices on fixing work. He is published in the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and is a regular contributor to Wired. Bruce's book, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, was the UK's top-selling business hardback of 2019. It is an international bestseller and is translated into 14 languages. Previously, he spent over a decade running Twitter and YouTube, the latter at Google, for Europe, leaving Twitter as its most senior leader outside of the U.S. Bruce runs the number one Apple business chart-topping podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, on work culture. He now spends his time championing reforms to workplace culture and working to find solutions to climate change. And today, Bruce Daisley joins us from across the pond. Welcome to Culture Factor 2.0. Thank you so much. This this podcast is right up my street, so uh, how fabulous to talk to you. Yeah, well, when I had learned about your podcast, um, I actually had learned through Cormac Jackson, who featured you on Building yeah. Superpower. Um, I was immediately drawn to you and, of course, subscribed and have been listening to your podcast, so... Um, it's really great. And, and at the end of this, I'll let you share with everybody how to reach you um, and, and some other places anyway, um, not just your podcast. But um, yes, let's uh, let's jump right in here. So let me uh, start with if culture was the strategy and I'm a big proponent of culture is the strategy for creating a healthy workplace. How would you define it? And what would you do if you were in the C-suite? And what would you do if you weren't and you were just somewhere in the organization, whether you were a sales coordinator or director of sales? Yeah. Um, so, look, you know, I, 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 to take a step back, I think these, there's plenty of evidence, if you look for it, that culture can be an important competitive advantage. And as we're recording this um, about 10 days ago, Tony Shea, who was the boss of Zappos, who was famed for for believing really uh, I, th- I think um counterculturally uh t- sorry to to use the the phrase but um, he he strongly believed that customer service was a defendable strategic advantage and the way that he believed at Zappos that he could have the best customer service is by grounding it in the best workplace culture he believed that the two were interwoven that effectively how you treat people internally immediately becomes this pay it forward style experience where we we then create a good environment for our customers he he was a strong advocate of that and there's just plenty of evidence that actually good workplace culture can be a really potent strategic advantage probably one of the people i'm most inspired by is zainab tan who's a of all things, she's a professor of, of operations at MIT. But what she found herself studying is she studied retail stores. And anyone who's worked in retail will tell you that retail is organized chaos. And the art is keeping the chaos manageable. So it, it doesn't actually 
seem chaotic to the people outside, but you're constantly dealing with unexpected changes. Deliveries turn up that weren't expected. Deliveries don't turn up that were expected. Uh, stock runs out. Demand changes. You know, people need to wear masks. It's like so many changes all the time to to how it works. But what Zainab Tan noticed was that organizations who prioritized a good workplace experience, who prioritized the way that they are treating um, their workers, they were more profitable than the, their rival cohort. Right. That's really interesting. And she, her book, a good, The Good Job Strategy, is uh, is really inspiring to read, actually. She she gives a couple of examples. This this couple of examples that just talk really about the dignity of work and how you know we get. Sometimes we sort of roll our eyes about work. It's a bit like school kids pupils talking about loving school because it's you're just not meant to do it. But Zenipton talks about the dignity of work and and how you know it does give us our esteem and our values. Um, and she really talks about the the value of this workplace culture. C- companies who you know, in retail, it'd be very easy. You normally have, in normal times when we're allowed to go out, you normally have two big peaks during the day uh, before people go to work and when people come out of work. And then you've, during the day, you get, um, you know, sort of older seniors and you get, you know, mums or you get a, a different cohort. And so consequently, sometimes in retail, stores will say, okay, we'll only have people in in the morning. Then you're on a six hour break. Then you come in in the evening. It's an awful experience. And the firms that say, no, we're not going to do that. But what we're going to do, we're going to train our workers so in the middle of the day they can do other jobs. And so as a consequence of that, as a working experience, it's much more agreeable to the the people concerned. Focus on the, the workers' experience first. And I think, you know, what we can do when we look into these people who have gifted us evidence of how we can seek to make, we can start off by saying, how can we make this an agreeable place to work and motivating a positive place to work? Well, when we start off with that as our first objective, then the outcome for workers is far more satisfying. But the business success often hinges on that. So I think, you know, anyone who's interested in these things, anyone who's taken with the idea of of making work a better place there's plenty of evidence for that and i think to to my mind i found myself i worked as you mentioned long-term tech exec and what i found was that there was um there was a, a a lot of talk a lot of chatter saying that tech firms have the best workplace cultures that decidedly wasn't my experience it it wasn't markedly different from my non-tech jobs in fact if tech firms do anything it's they um they use they use marketing they use culture as marketing so they you know they show you there's plenty of moments for you to pull out your phone in tech firm environments because you know they want you to pay paste it into your timeline they want you to um they, they want you to to share what they're doing because it makes their their environment better but you know from someone who's worked in there tech firms don't have a better culture than anywhere else i found myself thinking right well i'm at the, a tech firm and thankfully i'm in a position where i can create the culture i can build a culture okay so so uh, what can i do and i 
I found myself realizing that there was plenty of writing. There's loads of academic studies about how we can make work culture better. And what I discovered was that quite often the you've got to understand the the mindset of the people you're dealing with. And quite often I would find uh, one illustration is a, a nonprofit invited me in. And they said, will you come and talk to us? Um, we're having some problems with our culture. And they said, you know, as illustration of the problems we've have, we're having, we decided, um, we decided that the, we, we needed to fix the culture. We invited everyone along to a four-hour kickoff meeting and no one turned up. And I think, you know, this is one of the... Um, this is one of the challenges that a lot of people are experiencing. They are, um, they are overwhelmed. And so uh, what I found was when I was trying to fix my culture at my work at, at Twitter, um, I noticed that quite often you hear firms, there's a lot of talk in technology spaces that people say, oh, we've got a new app that's going to fix the culture. We've, we've, uh, we've done this new subscription. It's going to fix the culture. Or we did something at Twitter, which I thought was a terrible idea, but it was decided that everyone in the company was going to get a 360 appraisal. So they were going to get about 10 people to evaluate them in a month, uh, in one month. And what happened therefore that every, that you created this, this massive amount of admin work and that everyone had to do. And what we didn't say is what, people should do it instead of. So we didn't say, here's what we're doing. We're going to give everyone some really valuable uh, feedback. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to make space by cancelling all meetings next week. Right. Okay, you get it. Then there's a trade-off. Whereas what normally happens is people were given these 10 essays to write on their colleagues and you know details to fill in, but they still had to do their natural job. And so what happened was everyone just... Um, if you can imagine a two by two grid where, you know, it's sort of good and bad in one column and the uh, skills and the other axis was, uh, was attitude. So these two by twos, well, everyone in the company was in the top right quadrant. Why? Because you've asked loads of people to evaluate their colleagues. They've realized that this is game theory. If they're nice to their colleagues, their colleagues will be nice to them. So we spent a month on top of our normal job, doing this exercise to evaluate everyone in the company and the value of it was zero. In fact, worse than that, the opportunity cost of the exercise meant that it destroyed people's energy. So the, the value of it was less than zero. And that's the challenge that I find that quite often when you think of that nonprofit, that you know no one has the space to do these things. What I realized was if I was going to um, make the culture better. What I needed to do was create space to make the culture better. So some of those things that you know I I really strongly advocate are that um, that you know we, we need to sort of get back to celebrating lunch breaks. We need to we need to make sure that people feel that they can they can take you know a, a get you know where we are. I guess uh, where you are is uh, similar right now. But the daylight's disappearing right now, and it's very easy to look up from your screen at four o'clock and think that's it. The sun's gone for the day. But <laughs> if you if you assert to people, okay, you should feel free to take an hour outside, or you know you should feel free to switch one of your video calls to a phone call and take it while you're going for a walk. And and if you assert those things to people, what you get is that people 
then move into a better frame of mind themselves. And, um, and as a consequence of that, any actions that you then subsequently introduce to improve the um, connection between people, the sociability, they're, they're more readily accepted. So, you know, my first start point would be how can you, you've probably got undiagnosed burnout in, in your colleagues at work. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got undiagnosed burnout and you know, the first thing you probably need to do is think, what can we do to address that burnout? I, I agree with you. You know, it's interesting, burnout and the mental health um, component of the workplace is top of mind, I think, for a lot of people, um, should be I, top of mind for the C-suite. Um, and as somebody who is studying culture like yourself and learning from all these different experts, um, I, I'm a big advocate as uh that one of the things they need to do is introduce less tools, less tools mm. that the workforce has to um, implement on their upload onto their computer, use on their phone, um, less tools um, that require them to be in front of a screen, less happy hours, less Zoom meetings. Um, I think that because our work lives and our home lives have merged. Um, it's it's really hard to see a differentiation between the two. They they're just morphing together, and if you just require more time in front of the screen, um, like you said, three hundred and sixty reviews or some type of software that is supposed to help monitor how they do things, it's it's just more work, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That that's normally what happens. You know, there'll be some genius salesperson who turns up and says, "We've got a new app. You can have it on your phone, and you know, all your colleagues can do this. They can rate this. They can uh, they can you know log into this." I saw yesterday a major international newspaper was speaking at a conference that I was I was watching on catch up and they were talking about how they had an incredible diversity and inclusion program uh leveraged around an app that they'd given for everyone at their workplace and i know for a fact you know having worked in technology for for so long i know for a fact the usage of apps like that is incredibly low and it's just a box checking exercise it's just a, a box um filling exercise that you know they were they are able to say we dealt with diversity with a brilliant app and you know the the usage of it will be incredibly low uh, it, it it can't create anything close to a rich experience. So, you know, it's it's just really about looking looking like you've done something. And anytime you feel that an organization is run by lawyers, you know, that there's there's something I saw which is Oracle, the um the technology firm, and and Google have both um have, well they've both banned hugging, but um and and I can get the reasons why, you know, people might be anxious about hugging, but the best people to determine whether hugging's acceptable or not acceptable broadly are, are colleagues in an office. And, you know, to to ban something, I think removes some degree of humanity from us. You know, we we 
broadly, we, we know when we're welcome hugging someone and when we're not, then, you know, we can go and report it. But introducing like this company ban on it just means that and an Oracle also introduced a ban that people could no longer friend their colleagues on Facebook. Um, and this is because lawyers are running the organization because the lawyers have said, you know, if someone makes an inappropriate comment about someone else's lifestyle, if we've banned Facebook, <laughs> Facebook, then um, then effectively the company isn't exposed to the risk. And it's and it's just it's such a, a deeply cynical approach to dealing with people. So, you know, that that's my concern on on. Uh, and, and just general things, you know, you, you're never going to have a good culture in a workplace if you're allowing the lawyers to sort of mitigate all risks. Yeah, I, I will agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and generally it's for the optics anyway, like you said. So you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so taking a look, I, what I'd like to do, I noticed on your podcast, actually, you had a series on community. So um, for our listeners, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit with you because I thought it was so rich and I really, really liked, um, I listened to a couple different ones that you did in there. I think you had four. I I think I listened to two or three of them, but um, I wanted to get your thoughts on creating community. Um, aside from the fact that I think it is truly going to be, um, you know, the hashtag of 2021, um, do you think it can be a good tool? Um, and what, what, just, what are your basic thoughts on community? Do you, do you think it is, um, part of the roadmap for us in, in this new work from home life? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of my podcast is me trying to work things out on the go. And so what happened was that in the, uh, I sort of, I found myself when we, we've had quite an extensive series of lockdowns in the UK. And, um, and the, when we f- first went into the lockdown, I was just, I was writing a book proposal for a book. And I thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to dedicate the next six seven months to writing that book and then what happened is that work started being disrupted there was a moment there was a new york times article about six weeks into the pandemic and the new york times article was talking about how um there was a recognition that manhattan would never be quite the same again and it was like okay that's really intriguing because you know people were coming out saying we recognize now that our aversion to um our aversion to uh, you know, remote working was something that it probably is no longer defendable going forward. Like a lot of companies were saying that, you know, uh, the, the chief exec of a British bank said the days of bringing 7,000 people into one building every day are a thing of the past. It's like, wow, these, these interesting things were happening. And then along the way, I saw um, someone who was a, a sort of iconic tech leader from the UK wrote a post talking about community, talking about how most of the companies that she was talking to were hiring community managers. And this was specifically for multiple communities. It might be communities of people who use their products. It might be communities of their stakeholders. And it was also communities at work. And I was like, okay, this is really intriguing. Um, And so I just found myself on a, I, 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 
bought all the books I could that were out on it. Um, I contacted all of the authors saying, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. I completed all of the interviews and I thought, you know what, that sits together as a series on this. Uh, the conversation I had with Casper Tequil, um, who's a, a British guy, he's an atheist who... Divinity school, right? I think I that's right. He teaches at the Divinity School, and like you know, so it's like this. You know, he so he studies and he speaks on religion, but he's an atheist. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating because he's so respectful towards religion, um, and he loves what it's gifted us in terms of these rituals. And he's probably, you know, he's such a wonderful source of knowledge on rituals and and why they are so important to us they give us meaning wonderful and so i had this conversation with them and you know so i chatted to one firm a SaaS, a software as, as a service firm i've hired a community manager international firm uh, they've got 500 employees and they hired a community manager because of they they thought, okay, well, if we're now connected with each other every day through a screen, then some of the things that communities like Twitch or that um, communities like Etsy that might have done in the past to build these uh, affiliations and communities of their users, maybe we need to learn from those skills. Anyway, I chat to all of these people. And, you know, it's, firstly, it's fascinating because the, the answer to so many questions is sort of. And uh, that was the answer to, to community that a lot of people are recognizing that if our team aren't together every day and, you know, maybe the version of work that we're going to be in the future is something like that, where we're not going to have the ritual of Monday to Friday in the office, that there might be some days in the office and some days not in the office and, and our days might not intersect with other people's days in the same way. That having some way to to think about how you can build some sense of collegiality and and community is probably an important discipline to have. And and you know the perspective I come at it from is that I spent um, twelve years working at Twitter and YouTube, and the the one thing that I learned there is that both of them started off as these wonderfully playful, joyous products that we could use that we could connect with other people that brought us unimagined delight and wonder and then over time we witnessed actually these there's a characteristic of how humans behave and the way that humans behave through a screen is when when you can't see another pe- person through a screen um you <coughs> if you agree with that person you it doesn't stop you forming an incredibly strong affiliation with them an incredibly strong bond you we, we can we can feel an intense camaraderie joy affection with someone we agree with through a screen but if we disagree with them it's one of the most potent ways to mobilize enmity and hostility in us. If we disagree with someone through a screen, we depersonalize them. We stop regarding them as complete and human and we start seeing them as, you know, evil incarnate. And so it was really interesting for me because I think one of the challenges we're going to have going forwards is that if we are working remotely, one of the things we need to focus on is making sure that we have a sense of trust. We have a sense that people give each other the benefit of the doubt. They, they assume, presume positive intent, you know, they, they presume that we're all on the same side. And so that's where I think having a focus on building community is going to be so incredibly helpful. Mm. 
I, I think that um, a lot of companies, I think the top two positions that are going to be coming in in 2021 are head of remote and head of community, to be honest. Um, it, you know, Very you much so, yeah. Um, the gentleman from the Divinity School. And I, I think a really interesting companion piece for the listeners would be um, Priya Parker wrote a book called The Art of Gathering, which I think I've given like a million copies as gifts. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Stimulating book, isn't it? It is really great. And she talks a lot about ritual and our, our need for, for community and gathering. So that would probably be interesting. I think you had said, um, and, and I apologize, I forgot that gentleman's name. Um, can you say it Casper again? Casper to, to Quill. Um, yeah, he's he's a, amazing. Free a free book online as well that I think that's right would be really nice together to to read. Um, so let me just let's see. So we went off on a different direction here, which I'm really excited about um, because I think understanding how to use community as a tool. Um, without adding too many other tools, of course, because we don't want to be online all the time. Um, mm. So what are your thoughts on cre- like allowing the workforce to bloom on its own, like let them create um, community where they feel they want it, whether it's as simple as a book club or, you know, football, you know, people who follow football or, um, people who love gardening, um, any of the many things that we love to do at home. Um, but if it was coming from the workforce and not something that was coming from management, but was offered as a tool um, to allow them to create this community that they're missing because they can't really leave their house and gather. Do you, do you think that that is an opportunity for uh for companies or or do you think that's maybe not going to help much yeah um look it's it's so um it's so difficult to know i mean what i do know is that um that there's there's very little uh substitute for real life face-to-face conversation that I think, you know, to my mind, tools that connect people haven't yet been a great approximation, a great replacement for, um, for face-to-face gathering. And I, and I know that that's frustrating because we're looking for something that's as good. I, I've, you know, looked into these things. I, I had a lot of people contact me at the start of the lockdown saying, you know, we're launching this tool. Will you give me a, Will you give us a shout out on your newsletter? And, you know, I, I err on the side of of thinking there's a lot of overpromise in these things that, you know, they, they don't necessarily work. Not sure if that fully answers your question, but, you know, um, I, I, I tend to think that these, these really interesting things. I'll give you one example of how humans are a very frustrating subject matter. And um, there's some wonderful work by a researcher out of Oxford University, and she, she a psychologist, anthropologist, and she she took a group of rowers and she put them on rowing machines. So you've seen these people at the Olympic Games, if not elsewhere, but they're extraordinary specimens of muscularity. And, um, and she, she put the first group on rowing machines and she asked them to row for 10 minutes. And it, it of course, brought out their 
they're competitive and and you know their desire to do everything well so they got rowing then she took a, a separate group and in a room she put them together and she said i want you to row in these rowing machines but i want you to row for um you've got to row in time with each other so you've got to emulate you know the, the synchronized stroke that you you row in um on a lake and uh, what she did afterwards is she measured, they did about the same amount of work, the two different groups, same amount of calories were burned. And she looked, she then measured the endorphin levels, the pleasure hormone levels in their bodies. And those who'd rode in time with each other had twice the pleasure hormone levels of those who'd rode alone. Wow. And, um, and you know, you might witness this. If you've ever found yourself exercising alongside another person, I've got this unfortunate thing that you know the five or six times i've run with other people um i've run about a minute a mile faster than when i run on my own but if you know if i go out onto the street and i sort of say right i'm going to run as fast as i ran with arlie um then i i just don't run anywhere near as quickly and so it's this strange thing why is it that i've got that capability in me but it can only be unlocked when real people are in front of me and that sadly is the same thing that we have when we're we're looking at what substitutes are there for real world communication we it, it's harder to trick the software inside us um that you know we we just we start we can't simply go into the productive mode unfortunately mm. you know um there is a, a really great guy that I interviewed, um, Brian Smith, and he worked with uh, Olympic athletes at the, the Rio Olympics. And um, he would probably be a really interesting person for us mm. to have a conversation with right now. But um, he, he talks a lot about, you know, burnout and everything. But um, just in terms of productivity in a team environment and the endorphins, um, I think what I'll try and do is see if I could get him to chime in on uh, LinkedIn when this when this posts. And maybe we can dive into that conversation at least uh, in yeah. a little bit because uh, I think that would be really nice. Um, you know, compliment to this conversation. Um, so a, another thing I wanted to tap into with you, um, you know, I had, I, I get a, a newsletter from Rashad Tabakawala um, and he wrote Restoring the Soul of Business. And um, he talks a lot about how we're shifting and how uh, we will all be gig workers in a gig economy. Um, how do you think this will, um, do you think it'll affect workplace culture, um, people who, um, have already have jobs and work with a team? Um, do you think that that's going to affect workplace culture if, if companies start to, to move towards more of a freelance workforce? Yeah, I think it will. Um, we and and I guess the the challenge is the the frustrating follow up is we don't fully know how. I suspect that you know there was there's there's something about the um the you know the companionship we get when we sit at a group of desks that even if we we don't feel that you know we're in a, we've got a kindred spirit then there's something just nice about distractibly discussing the show you watched on Netflix last night or the the you know celebrating someone's birthday um that's that sort of makes us feel human to some extent and 
the um, of course the the challenge is is that if we're working remotely, will we lose some of that sense of of belonging? And that you know, overall, the the whole of society is witnessing something of a a loneliness epidemic. I think yeah. the, I saw a, a piece mm-hmm. of work that. Um, that the the average American person says they've only got one friend in the world, and you know that they, they could they could share their concerns, their problems with. So you know we we witness these things all of the time that uh, that loneliness is is all around us, and I think you know the, the challenge for all of us then is well. Will the will this make it worse? And you know the answer is, I suspect, yes, po- probably. Um, so we probably need to be thinking going forward. We need to be thinking, okay, what could we do to um, make us feel connected to other people? Is there a substitute, an easy substitute that will make us the um, more bonded? I've been really taken. I spent you know a few months at the start of the summer looking at the the different lessons the good and bad lessons that um that the remote only firms have got that the, the firms who've been doing this for a long time and what you discover from that is that you know they they've got they've often got very different approaches so um one thing that automatic the company that make Basecamp do is they recognized uh no no sorry forgive me uh the, the automatic the company that make wordpress do um they they realized that uh they wanted to create that sort of kinetic caffeinated turbocharged energy that we we often find when we're in the office but they they wanted to allow people to work from wherever and what they did is they they said, okay, what we're going to do is if the old model of work was that you work for um, 11 months a year in in a place with colleagues and then uh, one month a year you go and you, you, you know, you go on vacation, you do what you want. Um, they said, okay, we're going to invert it. You're going to spend 11 months a year working from wherever you want and then one month a year together with colleagues. And the way that they did it is they said, you know, actually, it's one week a quarter, but it's compulsory. It's it's um, part of the terms of your employment that you need to, you know, have your pet sitter on call. You need to make sure your grandmother's got a fridge full of microwave meals because uh, for one for one week a quarter, we're all getting together in person compulsory. And what they did is they they gather people and they bring them, you know, Palm Springs one time or or Las Vegas one time or uh, Boulder, Colorado one time. So they, they take them to, to, uh, to good places and they get together and these, you know, some degree of ideation, there's some degree of, um, of, you know, coming up with next year's plan, but they do it face to face and then they go away and they, they then spend the the rest of the year or the, the rest of the time sort of working on delivering those things. Really interesting because firstly, even those remote only firms are saying, okay, there's an, we've recognized there's an important component of good working that is being around colleagues. Now, you know, or I, I think companies like Basecamp, they, they say they, they went into this probably in the way that a lot of us could recognize that, that Basecamp used to have, you know, tech firm based out of Chicago. They used to have a fabulous office. It was like the Apple store of offices, but they allowed people to only work on the days 
they, they wanted. So they, they said, come in when you want, don't when you want. And what you discover very quickly, if you allow that degree of autonomy, uh, you discover very quickly that the office has a network effect. And if we remove the office's network effect, um, the benefits of the office go down exponentially. So uh, what do I mean by that? Um, what I mean is that, you know, if you basically, if, um, if, if you've got colleagues who are free to, to work from home whenever they want, what happens is that, um, you know, there's a cost benefit analysis. So you, it takes you 45 minutes, an hour to get to the office. When you get to the office, the benefit is that if you're plugged into the network effect, you know, the big boss is there, you know, the marketing person's there, the sales team are there. You can, you can chat to all those people in, and, you know, it feels like you've, you've connected with them. And one of the crucial functions of the office is meeting people by accident. Um, and, you know, so just, so you get some benefit, but what Basecamp discovered is that when they allowed people to decide what days they were working from home, people would make that 55 minute drive into Chicago. They would get there, they would pay for their parking, they would buy themselves some lunch. And then the people they wanted to speak to weren't there. And the next time they are presented with setting off and, um, and, and going into the office, they say to themselves, you know what? Um, I, I'm, I'm just going to stay at home today. I'm going to save myself $40. I'm going to stay at home today. And and that's what a lot of these firms did. Basecamp, in the end, closed their office because no one was using it. And so, you know, I, I think we, we probably need to be a bit more intentional about what we're planning to do and what the, the new version of work looks like. Because if we don't do that, I think we could easily make the mistakes that that Basecamp stumbled into, really. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think a lot of companies will close their brick and mortar because, uh, you know, we don't know how long the pandemic's going to be when there'll be a vaccine and it's cost them an immense amount of money to keep it. Um, but I do think that when we do have vaccines, um, that kind of situation is not going to work for every company. I mean, I don't think that hundred percent of companies in business can eliminate that. I think there's just certain types of businesses that still need to come together. Uh, I, you know, for example, you know, manufacturing, not everything can be automated. Um, yeah. I, I do believe though that we, you know, the packaged goods business has seen um, a really interesting trend over the last few years, which is um, it's it, the trend in the space is called zero Based budget zero based budgeting and so this is firms that you'll know that make the chocolate bars that you eat or the um that make this the snacks or the the washing powder that you use and these firms have seen that investors have come to them and said uh, unless you cut all of your costs so quite often if you ever chat to anyone who works in these packaged goods firms they're not allowed to make many copies a day they you know they're limited in in what they can do and i'm certain in that space that has been beset with activist investors who are trying to strip all the costs out i'm certain that we're going to see some of those firms are going to be approached by activist investors who say just so you know unless you introduce a plan to go fully remote we're going to come and uh, we're going to do that for you. And so typically an office space uh, typically accounts for about 5% of a, a company's costs, oh, 10% of a company's costs. And so, you know, you can definitely see that 
organizations will be faced with the challenge that, you know, maybe they don't initially want to go fully remote or they don't want to go, um, they, they don't want to increase the their exposure to remoteness, but they're going to find that, in fact, there's going to be outside pressures to do it. So, you know, who knows how these things are going to play out. But I do think back to your original point, some of the ways that we used to seek uh, to create good workplace cultures are going to be challenged. We're not going to be able to do just the, um, the, the things that we did before, really. Yeah, I agree. Um, so one of the things about your podcast um, is you, you say it in three words, make work better. If mm. you could give me three words um, that would be three things that would make work better, what would that be? Um, Sorry to put you on the spot, but yeah. But the, the first, the first one is not is not a word. It's fewer meetings. Um, the really interesting thing is that you know if you chat to some of the remote only firms, they talk about how meetings are a last resort. And I think it's only really been the last couple of years that I've seen any sense of experimentation with this. So you know, when I worked at Twitter, one of my colleagues who now has just moved to, to go to Google, but he um, he systematized something that initially started at Amazon, which was um, silent meetings. And, and you know, he wrote si- the silent meeting manifesto. You can get that. You can search for it. Um, but the silent meeting manifesto sort of goes through and explains how any of us can uh, can run our meeting silently. And it's it's fabulous. It was sort of, you know, it was a huge success at our, at our organization, a massive success. So, um, so, and, and that was like a, a, a fabulous innovation, I think that we, that we used. Um, so, but you know, there's, there's not been much experiment till now, but you know, one of the first things I would do is I would, I would urge fewer meetings, uh, make teams smaller is another, another thing that I do. You get a lot of benefits from making teams smaller. It uh, improves the improves the psychological safety in the organization. It, um, it creates, it just, you know, reduces the amount of connections that you need to have uh, with each other. So it reduces the amount of, of communication that you need um, to make teams smaller. And we're seeing some evidence of firms looking into this now. Um, you know, firms are looking into, I saw a French firm, I saw a Chinese firm that said, okay, let's split our organization into lots of little small micro organizations who each um, make their own uh, make their own autonomous decisions, really. So just, um, you know, so make teams smaller, fewer meetings, you know, uh, those would be the direction of travel I'd probably go in, really. Mm. You know, uh, when you talk about fewer meetings, um, and and also you you had talked a little bit about, um, you know, restructuring how, you know, work hours or days, you know, like a certain amount of months on, time off, that type of thing. It brings me actually to a book that was written by... Um, uh, Max Frenzel and uh, John Fitch called time off and they really did a great several case studies into different businesses like Basecamp like you spoke of um, and and they offer up a few different ideas in there um, so I would probably say um, 
when Bruce Daisley says fewer meetings, I think of that. Um, yeah. And um, I actually agree with you on um, smaller teams. I think looking at business in the micro instead of the macro um, can produce um, very, um, you, you can produce better work, I believe, you know, when you have a lot of people and a lot of people have to respond and a lot of people have to research along with you on a project and you have to get this person to sign off and that person to sign off, um, it breaks down productivity. And I think actually smaller teams are better. I also believe that um, they become their own little social circle and mm. they stronger in time. They work more efficiently over time. Um, so I'm going to agree with Bruce Daisley today on mm. those factors <laughs> a little bit along the way, cause I'm just really curious and that's why I continue to do my podcast. Um, so as we come to a close on this really great, great time together, cause I have to say this has been very enjoyable for me. Um, can you tell us where to find you? Um, what is top of mind for you for 2021? And I'll put all that in the show notes. Yeah, so um, where to find me? I've got a website which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And the, yeah, I sort of spend a lot of time really sort of chatting to different organizations. Tomorrow I'm chatting to, um, well, today I spoke to a hospital trust. Uh, tomorrow I'm chatting to a group of lawyers. So, you know, I chatted to a big breakfast cereal company last week. So, you know, I, I just, chat to try and work out what they're doing, what their plans are, hear from them. Um, so a, a lot of my work goes into that. I do a, you know, a podcast that's probably every other week generally, and then a newsletter, which is weekly. So, you know, I, I put a few things out there to just try and share that. Um, what's top of mind? I am part of Al Gore's Climate Reality Group. And the um, anyone can apply to Climate Reality Group. It used to be that you would have to pay, I think, about $7,000 and you would go to Las Vegas or Berlin and you'd be trained. This year, they went fully remote and they've opened their doors to lots more people. And the only, so you, if you've ever seen An Inconvenient Truth, um, the Al Gore movie about climate change, it's about 15 years old now. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the slide deck that he did in that uh, in that film is largely the, the, you know, the grandparent of what you do now. So they give you all this training, they teach you how to do it, they give you all the, the evidence and the science to, to answer, you know, questions in the room. Um, but the only thing you have to commit to is you have to commit to sharing the message and, and passing the message on. So, you know, in the course of October, I presented to about 30 organizations, just giving them sort of a climate change um, update and, and you know more of the same next year really the the uh, the interesting thing is that when Al Gore did that work 15 years ago climate change was the, the sort of the climate situation was something that was known to us but there were no real solutions um, and in fact the, the transformation of the last three years really is extraordinary solar power was described by the international energy authority about a month ago as the cheapest energy in history and onshore wind energy is pretty close to it actually and so we've got these two really clean really abundant as um president-elect uh, biden talks about he says every time he hears 
um, you know, people talk about climate, here's jobs, because these massive jobs in equipping the economy with these things. And if we can just have a degree of urgency into how we're doing it, you know, we could very easily find ourselves in 15 years that energy will be free at the point of consumption. You know, you'll sign up to it like the data on your phone. Um, it's, so it's such an exciting revolution that could really transform our relationship with with the planet but we just need a degree of urgency to the way we're doing it so um i'm just focusing some of my energy on that really oh that's fantastic um you know i'm gonna add i know you had shared some links with me um in terms of your podcast and your newsletter um and your book i'm gonna ask you if you could send over that link i'm happy to throw that in the show notes so that if anybody wants to uh jump into that for 2021 um i think that that would be really great Wonderful. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for coming on Culture Factor. This was really fantastic. Such a lovely chat. I'm so grateful for the invitation.